Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. New York City has been a major center for international espionage during every era of American history, from the Revolutionary War to modern-day terrorism. Joining us now are H. Keith Melton, an intelligence historian and authority on espionage technology, and Robert Wallace, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Technical Service. Together, they've written five books about espionage and spycraft. Their latest, Spy Sites of New York City, a guide to the region's secret history, describes over 200 sites in the five boroughs and the metropolitan area with numerous maps and photographs that allow readers to follow in the footsteps of the spies. It is published by Georgetown University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Keith Melton and Robert Wallace to our show now. Hello. Hello, Sir, good afternoon. Robert Wallace. Uh, you, Keith Melton. Yeah, well, I, I, that's who I inter- introduced. Uh, I'm going to let you people decide who's going to answer what question because uh, you're both experts here. Uh, you collaborated previously on a book called Spy Sites of Washington, D.C. How um, do New York and, and Washington compare in terms of the number of spies and types of spy activities? I will begin. Uh, this is Robert Wallace again. Uh, just for identification with your listeners, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, it's a fascinating topic. Well, we have uh, been intrigued by this uh, for years, and uh, when we uh, began uh, working on the on the topic, I think we were both surprised at the intensity of spying in both of those cities. There's a bit of a contrast because New York started earlier. And, and, it, it started and it's a bigger place. Washington, well, Washington didn't uh, really exist until after the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War. But uh, New York was a center, along with Philadelphia, of the two centers of spying by both the British and the American patriots during the Revolutionary War. So uh, the uh, concentration of spies in New York at uh, early on is is there and then as the years as the decades as the centuries uh, move forward Washington with its uh, being the capital city of the United States and the presence of so many embassies or all the uh, major embassies from around the world located here uh, spying in uh, in Washington took on a real prominence particularly in the uh, 20th century Is a large city the best place to pass secret information? And does it help that New York City has always had a diverse population, uh, so foreigners and outsiders blend in easily? Keith? Uh, I would say that you you bring a very good point, that because there is a density of personnel, its surveillance in a way doesn't stand out, but Mm. it's easier to perhaps be lost in a crowd. So Big cities have advantages as well as disadvantages. Contrast that to perhaps the suburbs or the lonely suburbs. Uh, An individual may be operating there, but a car following them, even discreetly, would stand out. So if you wanted to surveil someone, you'd much rather do it in a dense area. But the density, because of the, the wide variety of population and buildings with so many entrances and exits, uh, it brings on its own challenges. But because, I believe, as, as Bob said, 
espionage essentially follows power in governments. And so as the seats of government and power have moved, spies follow with them. And New York City is right up there with Washington as perhaps being the densest number of spies in any city in the world. Now, New York was the British center of operations during the Revolutionary War. Did uh, New York residents who supported the Continental Army have to leave? They did not, uh, no, did, did not uh, leave the city. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Washington uh, was very pleased to have uh, a number of people in the city who appeared to support the, the colonial government, or support the British government, uh, who, re- who remained in the city and provided him information. A publisher by the name of Rivington was perhaps uh, among the most prominent of those. Uh, another was a merchant by the name of Townsend, and uh, Townsend himself uh, had wanted to join the revolutionary for the patriot cause, and Washington said, "Hey, don't uh, stay. Stay where you are. You are be- being uh, more help to me as my eyes and ears in New York than you would be as a soldier." There was the Culper spy ring, which uh, worked out of a coffee shop. Keith, the, 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 the yes, the, the, the Culpers. What they found is that where better to to have a an agent than a place where people socialize. And in the world before Starbucks, then drinking establishments carried a, a strong position within the community where that's where gentlemen and perhaps ladies went to drink, dine, socialize. And if you wanted a source of information, just serving drinks, you picked up enough table gossip. So if, if you had a table of British officers their natural conversation might be not only those dastardly colonials, but where you're about to be posted when your ship's about to leave other information. And enough was gathered there that ultimately it was ferried and covertly transported out to Long Island where the rest of the culpa ring would in turn disseminate it. But uh, it was a major source of information, so much so that America, we would say our greatest spy master may have been George Washington because he personally directed agents, he created secret inks, and he used espionage as a form of a synchronous warfare, which used spies to offset the overwhelmingly superior British firepower, ships, and number of men and resources. So uh, espionage and New York City are have been linked since our country began. Now, where did Washington uh, learn the the skill of running a spy operation? Uh, and did he know the, the 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 real names of his most important spies? I'll start that and let Bob chime in. Of course, he had been a British officer earlier during the uh, the French and Indian War. So he recognized the value of intelligence. All military and political leaders want to believe they have a source of information that helps them bring, make good decisions. Washington did that. But it's very interesting when it comes to his covert nature, the secret side, 
We don't know exactly how he developed some of his secret inks. And historically, it is indeed questionable. He understood the importance of compartmentalization and may well not have known the agent name, though he certainly knew enough of their position in place that he could ascertain the the quality of the intelligence that was arriving. Now, one of your your thoughts. I was going to add Nathan Hale's name to this whole story. And that was, uh, Leonard, thank you. That was uh, where I thought I would pick up just a moment because that earliest uh, disaster for Washington was the case of Nathan Hale. And Nathan Hale, uh, who uh, successfully, I put that in quotation marks, uh, infiltrated the, the British ranks, uh, had, uh, had such a terrible or, or flimsy cover that he was quickly identified by the, by the British as, as, have, as having infiltrated. And uh, in those days, uh, spies didn't get long trials like uh, we are, uh, like is more common in uh, the country today. Uh, spies were, were executed usually within 24 or 48 hours after they, their guilt was established. And uh, so was the case with Nathan, Nathan Hale. He was so, uh, wasn't he physically that our, our first our most famous spy is uh, uh, almost could be uh, classified as a failed intelligence operation. Well, famous because of what his his final words. I only regret that I have but one life to lose to, for my country. Um, now he was physically unsuited to being a spy, and he was just twenty one years old. Uh, how was he caught? Well, I'm going to uh, inject on uh, on that point that it's uh, surprising, particularly for those of us who are now more advanced in age, how young spies really are. Uh, any intelligence service is going to uh, select uh, people who they they believe, for for whatever reason, have both the capability to carry out the the operation and the courage to do so. Uh, sometimes. Uh, m- many times we get it right. Uh, sometimes we may not uh, not get it right. Uh, the the nature of his of how he was actually uh, I- identified uh, is subject to a little bit of hi- historical dispute. But uh, apparently it was in conversation with some of the other British counterparts that uh, he in- inadvertently revealed information that made it apparent that uh, he didn't belong there. And where was he hanged in Manhattan? Well, that, well uh, this is a, that, that's interesting. It's a subject of some dispute because there's several possible locations. Uh, there's a, a plaque at the Yale Club at 50 Vander Built Avenue uh, near the intersection with East 44th Street. That's um, pretty far uptown. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there, there, we cite that it's, uh, well, of course, there's a statue to him in, in Hall, City Hall Park and Broadway Park Row and Chambers Street. Um, there's another plaque commemorating the site located at East 65th and 66th Street. So the actual precise location is still somewhat controversial and perhaps lost to history. I don't believe we'll would- ever be able to... Uh, finally pin it down um the 
original location, the, the earliest we can find, said it was at East 48th Street and 1st <laughs> Avenue. And, now, the, probably but, the, the other most famous spy of the time was Benedict Arnold. He defected to the British. Um, and hadn't Washington given him his fullest trust and put him in command of West Point? What turned him? Well, Benedict Arnold. This is a case of, of, uh, of uh, both uh, of ambition, uh, as, as, as much as anything. Uh, Arnold uh, saw, saw himself as a, um, as a very significant uh, figure, and he, and he was in the, uh, in the early part of the war, that, uh, who did not perhaps re- receive the recognition that, that he should or thought he should have. Uh, but, yes, he was in command of West Point uh, at the time of, Capture of his case officer, a British a British officer named Major Andre Keith. Now, well, it, uh, didn't it, it, Washington little... send his own spy to Arnold, uh, pretending to be a deserter? No, uh, Major no. John Andre was a British hmm. officer who was uh, a, a spy master of. Worked worked for a British intelligence British intelligence officer, and uh, he had uh, recruited, uh, or was in the process of recruiting ben- uh, Benedict Arnold uh, for the British cause. He, they would he would be given both uh, wealth and also a position, uh, a senior military position uh, within the British Army. Benedict Arnold and and uh, John Andre probably became acquainted. In Philadelphia, uh, in uh, in uh, 1776 or 1777, when the British occupied Philadelphia, and uh, at the at the time, Benedict Arnold and Major Andre uh, likely were uh, were romancing or uh, taking uh, taking a serious look at the same uh, young uh, Philadelphia lady by the name of Peggy Shippen. Uh, and Bob, actually, it was Peggy Shippen, well, who, who later married Arnold or was engaged to him and saw his frustration as he believed he was not being sufficiently recognized by General Washington and actually furthered the covert communication and brokered the initial exchange of information with, with uh, Major Arnold. And at the time... The West Point, and by the way, which is the oldest continuously operating military post in the United States, commanded the strategic position on the Hudson River because there was a great chain strung across the river, and it stopped British ships from traveling up and down the Hudson. So commanding West Point controlled the Hudson, and it stopped British resources from going back and forth up the Hudson. So when Major Andre met personally with with Benedict Arnold, Arnold provided him with the secret plans of West Point and made plans to effect his escape. But Arnold, in needing to get the information back, desperately wanted to get back to New York City, and he had a sloop arranged on the Hudson River to take him back. As he was traveling to link up with his water transportation, he was intercepted by two colonial troops who stopped him, and they were suspicious of his movement. 
And as they searched him, they found the plans for West Point mm. and information about Arnold hidden in his shoe. And subsequently, he was, he was arrested and then later hanged. I'm speaking with H. Keith Melton and Robert Wallace, uh, their book, Spy Sites of New York City, A Guide to the Region's Secret History, published by Georgetown University Press. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored radio. Uh, before and during the Civil War, why did so many New Yorkers support the Confederacy? The uh, Civil War uh, is a fascinating piece of, of American espionage because uh, it, it's the, the the one the one war that was uh, you, you had spies who looked exactly the same and talked exactly the same and uh, had much of the same heritage or the same heritage as the spies from the, the other side. I think uh, as we we work through the stories of. Washington and and New York. Uh, it was it was in, it was interesting that the the locus the focus of spying uh, for the Civil War had was sent more centered in Washington uh, because of the of the government there and and because Washington was in some ways one could argue a southern city. Uh, New York was uh, more isolated uh, and uh, didn't ha- didn't have the uh, seat of government, yet uh, there there seemed to be a, a, a good good attraction of, of many people in New York toward the uh, Southern cause, whether that was because of the states' rights issue or the uh, the, the slavery issue. What business? Uh, uh, the, the all all fact all factored into it. Uh, what we did not see uh, in uh, in New York uh, was the same uh, sort of. Of intelligence activity in terms of trying to find out information. Uh, what we did see in New York was uh, a lot of, of uh, back and forth in terms of the what we'd call influence operations, uh, trying to influence people one way or the other, and then some elements of, of sabotage. Now, New York City policeman Timothy Webster became a member of the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency and became a double agent. That was in uh, New York, despite the fact that we really were not a site uh, that no battles were fought up here. Yes, uh, no, no battles, and as I say, the the uh, New New York was was not really the, the source uh, locus of, of primary information, intelligence information that was being sought during the uh, the, the Civil War. Uh, the uh, Pinkerton organization uh, uh, came about uh, in part for uh, the protection. Of Abraham Lincoln, and uh, much much of what Pinkerton was involved with was to ensure the the safety of the president. Since uh, this was before the establishment of the uh, the Secret Service and the presidential uh, protection capabilities that we now have. You also talk about a a plot to set fires to hotels across New York City in 1864. Did the Confederates have an organized plan, or were these activities uh, just uh, plotted by individuals? Were they they hoping to to trigger chaos? 
Well, it was a, actually a, it was a well-thought-out plan. Uh, it, it almost actually succeeded, and it, was, it capitalized on the fact that New York was so dense it had, of course, virtually no fire code. And if fires started, it could have been quite a conflagration. So at the same time, in 1864, when you had General William Tecumseh Sherman marching through Atlanta, burning Atlanta, and laying waste to the South, eight Southern agents decided that they would, in turn, set fires in strategic hotels positioned across New York City in the hope of triggering chaos, which ultimately could lead to the seizure of, of federal buildings and freeing Confederate prisoners. And uh, literally, they, their goal was to set New York ablaze. Interestingly, when they did it, they were using a concoction known as Greek fire, which was a highly combustible fluid mixture uh, acquired from an unnamed chemist who lived in New York City. Um, and on November the 25th, they started several small fires. Um, one of the, the probably the biggest mistakes they made was they were inexperienced arsonists. Mm-hmm. And when they started the fires in the rooms, they left the windows closed. And as a result, the fires were starved for oxygen and did not consume the building as quickly as they would if they could have been fed with the open windows. And ultimately, though there was some damage, it never caused the widespread chaos or disruption that they hoped would occur. Now, didn't both Union and Confederate sympathizers frequent the old Grapevine Tavern on West 11th Street and 6th Avenue. Was that where the phrase heard it through the grapevine comes from? Leonard, I think that is a good story, and why not stick with it, although it may be <laughs> mythical. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, in, in fact, this, again, we see throughout uh, the, Civil, the Civil War this mixture of, of, of Confederate and uh, Union Union people just engaged uh, with with each other uh, continuously. Uh, it, it made finding spies hard, uh, and uh, in in some ways it made spying a little easier because uh, people uh, moves with such fluidity between uh, the the two sides. I, I wanted to uh, pick up. I was fascinated by this attempt to set New York on fire. Uh, in in a lot of ways, it was the reaction of a defeated cause, I, I think. It, it wasn't, there's no evidence that it was coordinated by Richmond out of Richmond or by General Lee or the mm-hmm. Confederacy. Uh, but uh, the, the headline that one of the newspapers carried was, it was a va- vast and fiendish plot. I like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But then another newspaper had, a, had an article, they interviewed a, a New York police officer and uh, this police officer was asked uh, at the time of the investigation, well, was this really set by Confederates or was this set by just criminals and some thieves? And uh, he said, it had to be set by the rebels. Do you suppose our New York thieves would have bungled that business so stupidly? <laughs> I thought that was a wonderful quote. Uh, pride in uh, our ability to... <laughs> <laughs> to do things here in New York City. 
uh, we there were other wars, but uh, the next big one was World War One, uh, and that's it's associated with numerous new weapons and technologies that changed the nature of war. Were there innovations that also changed the nature of spycraft? Uh, it, yes, espionage changed significantly during several periods. I mean, just backtrack slightly to the Civil War, where we see the introduction for the, of the camera for the first time. And so cameras were used for surveillance photographs, as well as for taking pictures of topography and places and entrenchments and fortifications. And also we saw for the first time you're putting cameras in balloons and taking aerial shots. Uh, the second thing was the telegraph, which was widely used to move armies remotely. This was quite new. We also had covertly the use of micro-miniature photographs known as microdots that were used to communicate between Confederate agents in Richmond and there in, in Ottawa, Canada. So good spycraft always represents whatever is the current technology. As we move into World War One, Bob and I were struck by the sophistication and widespread German espionage sabotage apparatus. There were over, there's still questions, but some 120 acts of sabotage that took place between New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia were on different scale, they were employing sophisticated devices that, for example, put a device in a coal bin in a ship and let it remotely after the out at sea. You tossed the explosive device disguised as coal. It would go in a bin and you'd blow up a boiler. There were devices devised that you could put on the on the rudder of a ship. In effect, it would be it would increment as the propeller spun and so you could set it roughly so if the ship had been out at sea three days four days five days it, the explosion would go off and the ship would just be mysteriously lost but they were not only using sabotage devices but were highly effective in setting up safe houses they were using brothels as cover they were forging american passports they were using secret inks uh, at a, and especially before America formally entered the war, because Germany had a longstanding interest in stopping the United States from sending munitions and supplies in, to support the British and French. So, so we were a very active battlefront. So were we behind because uh, both Germany and England had engaged in espionage and sabotage before the U.S. even entered World War One. I didn't understand the first part of your uh, question. Did we have to catch up? Because uh, I, we we have traditionally had to catch up after every war, because after most wars, we stood down our intelligence components, and essentially they were non-existent. So going into World War One, probably other than the military intelligence component, we really didn't have we had. The, the FBI only began uh, in about 1908 as the Bureau of Investigation, and at that time there weren't even laws to support 
the federal investigation of espionage as an act. So they had to not only change the laws, but they saw that clearly there needed to be a national organization, and ultimately the FBI rose out of that. But so great was the need that you had volunteer militia outfits that were such as the American Protective League that were sanctioned by the, the Justice Department to carry weapons. They carried badges, and they operated out of each city. They were motivated by, essentially, let's go catch spies. But sadly, they found that they were also carrying out personal grudges, and if you didn't like <laughs> a business competitor or if you didn't like your neighbor, well, then they'd be suspect, and there were a lot of abuses, and that led to the recognition in World War One that we had to do things differently. And you saw then the, the formation of formally of the FBI, and they began to move into the 20s, And it, but it took into the 1930s, about 1938, before the FBI formally established a counterintelligence division. Now, didn't German intelligence send coded messages from a transmission tower in Long Island, which has been linked... At to the, the sinking of the Lusitania? Well, they did. They actually had several towers, and they found that Telefunken was such a major, major source. Because remember, radio was very new in those days, and so it was very common for to purchase these large towers for purported commercial interests. The, the question was, were they also covertly communicating with submarines? And the belief is that there were communications sent to German submarines at sea notifying them of the, the movements of ships, including the Lusitania. And this became one reason that the U.S. government seized those powers and essentially took them out of German hands as we formally entered the war. Who was Count Johann Heinrich von Bernstorff? Uh, how did his small group of, of Germans operate a complex intelligence sabotage offensive here? Bob, you want to take that? Count Bernstorff, I believe, was the, uh, at the, at the time, he was serving as the ambassador, uh, German ambassador to the uh, United States. And uh, his, his uh, small group of Top-level top uh, in, intelligence officers, I guess, is, is the way I would best describe them, uh, were fortunate in that they had a, a very large German community uh, in the United States, uh, scattered throughout the United States, but concentrated in Philadelphia and New York, and, and to, to a degree, Washington. And uh, that provided a fairly uh, rich a source of, of uh, support agents uh, to help help them with both their espionage as well as their sabotage. Uh, in addition, the Germans were regularly sending uh, people uh, across to New York on their on their ships, um, di disguised or under the cover of stewards on the ship or some some innocuous other kind of cover. And uh, these these people provided both courier service as well as uh, they would be able to uh, disembark and reembark on the on the ships as a, as the operation 
There was might, an, be, might be concluded. There was an attack in 1916 on Black Tom Island Munitions Depot, um, which uh, resulted in the death of, of several people. Uh, th- that was re- close to the Statue of Liberty? Well, it was it was so close that the Statue of Liberty also actually took some small damage. And it is still considered one of the largest man-made explosions that ever took place in the United States. Uh, uh, As Bob was talking about, uh, Ambassador von Bernstorff, because Germany said that most of their best intelligence officers were deployed elsewhere against fighting the British Empire and in France. Uh, You know, Section 3B, their, their foreign intelligence, told von Bernstorff, Basically, he was going to be the chief officer for espionage and sabotage in the Western Hemisphere. And what they did was they assigned him some specific well-trained aides, uh, Captain von Poppen specifically, as well as a man named Captain Carl Boyed, both of whom were deeply sophisticated, well-trained and they essentially ran the operations in New York City in the area, using von Bornstark to provide them cover and support. And he, they was very effective. Uh, Except that and, it didn't it play a role in swaying public opinion against the Germans. Uh, the U.S. then entered the war. Well, it was their goal was, of course, to keep America out of the war. Hmm. But they were always torn between. Do they launch these operations? Um, and that, that was one of the interesting points for the advantages of having ships disappear at sea. If you blow up at Black Tom Island in a explosion, could you explain it on simply static electricity when they were filling the shelves and it was basically caused by improper storage? Or if a ship just disappeared at sea, it would be difficult to ever know what was really the reason and what happened. So they were always walking a fine line. The other thing that happened was there were a number of German warships that were essentially not imprisoned, but basically were being held in New York Harbor as we were a neutral power. And those officers had free movement. So they were passing back and forth into safe houses, which were controlled by German espionage. And there was a very active group. They were even buying and paying immigrants to apply for U.S. passports. They were paying them a bounty. Once they received them, then they were in turn used to be art altered and forged and were being used for further intelligence operations. So the Germans were aggressive. They were well-trained. And they were, at the time, far superior than our ability to stop them. It was and, also, Senator, uh, if I may interject, too, I, there's a, another element that is, I think, particularly relevant to today on the, the World War II espionage, and that's the German effort in swaying pub, public opinion or influencing government or influencing policy. And uh, that was a substantial part of their covert operations as well. They uh, we're talking about World War One or World War Two. No, we're talking about World War One, mm-hmm. and uh, they they purchased a uh, newspaper uh, in uh, in New York in uh, in World War One, the uh, New York Evening Post, uh, hmm. 
uh, German uh, German intelligence secretly pr- purchased that newspaper as a as a means of conveying the uh, the German uh, propaganda. That might Which explain was, some of the things that you find in the Post these days. Well, uh, well, uh, I think that particular organization is not the same. Uh, just so I don't uh, cast uh, improperly cast aspersions on on anyone, uh, but uh, the uh, the British uh, were were particularly aware of that. And uh, they countered with their own propaganda, uh, aimed both at discrediting the Germans as well as adv- as advancing their own cause. So the it's interesting uh, that today we we talk about foreign influence operations. In the past, we kind of talked about it as, you know, using the word propaganda, but in fact, these were the uh, uh, perhaps the the first major foreign. Uh, influence operations that we see in the United States. It was an interesting time because Leon Trotsky was living in the Bronx. Ho Chi Minh was living here in New York as well. And we'll get to that and other things in just a moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. With a plain and simple dream Wanna infiltrate some third world place And topple their regime Those men in black with their mansion suitcases Where everything's on a need-to-know basis Agents got that swagger Everyone's so cloak and dagger I'm feeling nervous but I'm really kinda wishing For an undercover mission That's when the red alert came on the radio And I put my earpiece on Got my dark sunglasses This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York. My guests are H. Keith, Keith Melton and Robert Wallace. Their book, Spy Sites of New York City, A Guide to the Region's Secret History, published by Georgetown University Press. And gentlemen, we'll get back to you in just a moment, but we have to take care of a little bit of WBAI business, okay? Sounds good. Okay. Of course. Uh, Jesse Lent, my executive producer, has joined me now to help me convince uh, a fair number of our listeners to become members of WBAI. Uh, Jesse, we're offering this book as an incentive. Hello, Leonard. Hello, Reggie. Hi, everyone. Yes, that is true. So today we're doing something a little bit different. We are so excited about this book, Spy Sites of New York City, and we just think it's such a cool resource that we know that a lot of WBAI listeners are going to want to get. So just today, uh, or as long as as long as these copies last, we are offering this book for a one-time $50 contribution to the station that you can make by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website, give to WBAI.org, uh, and making that pledge in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Now, people can also become BAI buddies, I assume. They can get the book if they do that as well. Of course, uh, but and we want to encourage people to think along those lines. But you don't have to become a WBAI buddy, which is uh, ten dollars a month or fifteen or twenty or whatever sustaining membership. If you 
become a m- member right now or just give us your show of support for $50, we are happy to send you a copy of this book. Anyone who's been tuning in has been hearing us talk about buddies, but that's why I said we're doing something a little different today. Today is really a day for people to donate whatever amount they're comfortable with. If that amount happens to be $50 or more, uh, then you can get Spy Sites of New York City. BAI buddies are great, but whatever... Uh, method you want to use to show your support to WBAI, the important thing is that you step up and make that contribution. Now, we are preempted tomorrow for some uh, special WBAI fund drive programming. And Leonard, as I'm sure you hear, I certainly hear a lot of complaints and see a lot of complaints in our comment boards anytime that we're preempted. And we don't like being preempted any more than our listeners uh, like it happening. But You know, look, if every time we went on the air for something like this, we were able to get a really strong show of support from our listeners, then these preemptions would no longer be necessary. So give us that call. Uh, The number is 516-620-3602. We hope that you'll say that you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We can go to give to WBAI.org. That's give, the number two, WBAI.org. Or just go to our regular WBAI site, WBAI.org. Any way you do it, the important thing is to show your support and, and ensure that we will be here for you in the near future. In fact, we're hoping to be near for you in the far future. This is our 60th year as a public radio station. And unlike other public radio stations, we do not take money from foundations, from advertisers, or anyone else. We are totally pure. We only uh, uh, survive through the largesse of our listeners, people who want to support us because they believe in what we do. And if you uh, are one of those people, we hope that you'll call us now, 516-620-3602, or give to WBAI.org. And what a great time and way to show your support for the station. If you're the type of person that likes to impress your friends or your family with your knowledge of New York, with uh, do you know what that building used to be? Uh, this is the book that's really going to give you a scoop that very few tour guides of New York even know. I'm sure there's a lot of people living in or around some of these spy sites that have no idea where they are. So if that's the kind of thing that's interested interesting to you and you want to keep us alive and bringing you this show, Leonard Lopate at Large, five days a week from 1 to 2 p.m., make that call one last time. The number is 516-620-3602. You can also donate on the web at give to wbaiorg That's give to wbaiorg Thank you to everyone who's contributed already and to anyone who's making that contribution right now. Thanks from all of us at Leonard Lopate at Large. Well, let's go back to our guests. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about, and I'm not sure we have time to cover everything. But I was curious, Keith, about uh, something I read in the Times last year. They they uh, published an article about your collection of espionage souvenirs. Um, you acquired the axe that was used by the Soviet agent to kill Leon Trotsky in Mexico City in 1940? Leonard, I did. Um, we, we technically don't refer to them as souvenirs. They're, they're artifacts. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's uh, yes, I have one of my interests has been 
and the technology of espionage. And Bob and I have written about many of the pieces, but as we go back in history and we look at significant pieces, for 40 years, I wanted to find the ice axe or the Alpenstuck that was used to kill Trotsky. And in 2005, located it finally in Mexico City. And uh, what is little known about the operation, if you'd like a, just a quick summary of it, was that New, New York City was at the center part of the whole operation. Trotsky, to most of your listeners, will be remembered as the last opponent uh, to, to Stalin. And the man, actually, that many believe should have succeeded Lenin following his death. Trotsky was sophisticated, he was intellectual, but he was not as wily and cunning as Stalin. And Trotsky was sent into exile in 1928, began essentially to run from Stalin, but he had no way to live other than publishing these damning articles that poked holes in the myth of Stalinism. So by the late 1930s, Stalin specifically wanted him dead, and they created several elaborate plots. The one that ultimately succeeded was given the codename Utka, U-T-K-A, meaning canard or, or duck. And it was operated out of New York City. And the key elements was that there was a Trotskyite family living in Brooklyn by the name of Ageloff. And they had a kind of a lonely daughter by the name of Sylvia, and the American Communist Party arranged for Sylvia, who was working a Columbia graduate, working as a social worker, to travel to New York City to the forming of Trotsky's Fourth International. While she was there, they introduced her to this dashing young Belgian son of a Belgian ambassador. And he was using the cover, the cover named Jacques Monard. In reality, he was a Russian assassin and the daughter of a, of a Spanish heroine by the name of Caridad Mercader. And he developed a romantic relationship with Sylvia. When she returned a few months later to New York City, he followed her and ultimately said he was going to go to Mexico City. Trotsky had escaped to Mexico City to escape the assassins. He had been kicked out of Europe, and he was living there literally at the time, under the protection of Diego Rivera, the famous muralist, and mm -hmm. Frida Kahlo. And using the family connections between Sylvia Ageloff and Trotsky, the assassin was able to get close to him on 10 meetings in the summer of 1940. And on August the 20th, he drove an ice axe into Trotsky's head while he sat reviewing an article. I want to get plans yeah. for ahead. that were set through the Pier, at the Pierpont Hotel uh, in New York City on the May the 28th, I believe, is when they established the plans, the final plans for the attack. So New York uh, plays a role in so many of these things. Following World War One, the U.S. Army military intelligence moved from Washington D.C. to East 37th Street in Murray Hill. It was called the Black Chamber, and uh, it brings us to a man named Herbert Yardley. Um, he was a cryptograph? Yes, uh, Her yes. Herbert Yardley was uh, uh, perhaps the uh, most uh, famous uh, of our 
cryptologist of, uh, out of the First World War and uh, had uh, great success in leading the cryptology effort that was uh, working on breaking a whole variety of our diplomatic codes. And he, but, uh, why did a ahead. popular toothpaste brand offer a vial of, of secret ink and a decoder to people who, uh, who sent in empty toothpaste boxes? Did you do that? I like that. that that's Sounds not like a good idea. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, was, it was at a time that, that the U.S. had essentially, after World War I, we had stood down our intelligence efforts. And even more so, by the late 1920s, uh, the Secretary uh, Stimson said, you know, we're going to even shut down the black chamber because, as he famously uttered, quote, Gentlemen do not read other gentlemen's mail. Mm. The, we were intercepting Japanese and German communication. By the way, he later would have eaten those words because he was the Secretary of War during World War II and depended on U.S. intelligence to give him information that we needed to prosecute the war. But we were very unprepared, yardly, though he fell out of disfavor because he wrote a series of novels, and in those, he revealed that essentially the U.S. had broken the Japanese naval cipher. And during the negotiations in the 1920s, it became evident that we knew their hands before. And that revelation brought him in great disfavor. And at the time, it, they pulled his security clearance. But then but, later uh, they made a movie with William Powell playing him in, in Rendezvous. Uh, so it became part of the popular culture. Uh, we, were only, we, we don't have a lot of time. I want to cover a few other sure. people. William Sebold, a German-American who came to be recruited by German intelligence to spy on Americans, but became a double agent? I double guess, agents. Uh, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead, Keith. Yeah, Keith, I'll defer to you. Uh, double agents are very, very rare. The, the, the term is used incorrectly. Siebold was recruited when he visited Germany from the States. They recruited him. He went through training to become a saboteur. He came back to the U.S. immediately reported to the FBI, and the FBI recruited him as an agent. And he set up the communication base in New York City in which – all of the other German spies would bring their information to him, and he would in turn do a secret transmitter that he purportedly operated on Long Island. He became the conduit to send all the information back to Germany. And though they did set up a transmitter, it was secretly controlled by the FBI, and the FBI was aware of all of the information that was being sent. And it was so successful that the, it became known as the Duchesne Network. And at one point, they arrested 33 agents, I believe in 1939. And at the time, it was the greatest counterintelligence success in U.S. history. And wasn't Sebold relocated, uh, an early version of the Witness Protection Program? Uh, he was. They were not quite sure. The U.S. was not in the war at that time. And protecting him, uh, you know, people didn't know how angry would the Germans be. But this blow going into World War II cut the head off of 
German espionage operations just before the war. So it was a very, very effective operation, and it was a template that the U.S. has used ever since. The SBI continues to use that same identical template in which they'll try to get someone, infiltrate them, make the other side believe that they're loyal to them, where in reality they're a double agent. Because you not only find out what your enemy's doing, you find out how they're communicating, you find out the targets that they're interested in, and it's very valuable. But double agents are very rare, they're very difficult to run, but when it's done effectively, it's one of the most effective of all ways of gathering intelligence. There was a movie in 2015 called Bridge of Spies, which told the story of Rudolf Abel, who was convicted of uh, espionage in the United States in 1957, later exchanged for uh, the American pilot, the U-2 pilot, Francis Gary Powers. Um, now, I don't know how accurate the movie was, but didn't Abel's assistants once mistakenly spend a hollow nickel that contained microfilm? Uh, Keith, this is well, really your story. So uh, Yes, he, he did. His name was Rhino Hayhannon, and he was a drunkard. And uh, Abel was sent here to take over the Volunteer Network, was the code name, which was the remnants of the Atomic Spy Network. And he was provided with Hayhannon, but Hayhannon was unsuited for the work. And they had fabricated, the Russians had fabricated a hollow 1947 buffalo head nickel. And in that, there was a tiny piece of microfilm. And in one of his drunken spells, Hayhannon spins the nickel. And ultimately, it turned up in the hands of some residents in Brooklyn. And when Jimmy the newsboy, collecting for the Brooklyn Eagle, goes to collect for the newspaper, they pay him with this nickel. <laughs> Later that night, he, he drops it, and it splits open. And he sees a piece of film inside. He takes it to the local Brooklyn police. They notice by the FBI. But on this film, this piece of microfilm, was a cipher. And the cipher was so complex that the FBI couldn't break it. And it was only until 1957 when Hayhannon was being recalled to Moscow because he was completely incompetent that as he passed through Paris, he defected to the West and offered to provide us the secret of his cipher. And he revealed the, what the message contained, came back to the U.S., and over six weeks, he provided enough information that we were able to identify Rudolf Oppel, who at that time was the senior Russian illegal operating in the United States. Now, during the Cold War, didn't the CIA give LSD to unsuspecting individuals, including Russian sailors and, and paid prostitutes? Did they gather any useful intelligence as a result? The uh, Bob, you operation that you're referring to is known as MK Ultra. Uh, it was a program in the uh, CIA originated in 1953. Uh, had uh, 150 different subprojects projects under that under that code name. Uh, one of those was to try to determine if there were certain uh, drugs or certain certain substances that would uh, uh, essentially be uh, uh, truth truth serums. 
Uh, this had been tried in the Second World War unsccessfully. There were new compounds. Pharmaceutical industry was advancing rapidly. Uh, LSD was a, a new compound uh, that was uh, that was available in Europe and uh, and uh, subsequently uh, in the in the United States. Uh, people thought it had certain certain properties, and so the uh, yes, the CIA set up a program uh, to do this kind of drug testing. Now the protocols for uh, human experimentation at the time uh, substantially uh, substantially different, uh, substantially uh, looser, uh, freer than than they are today. And uh, yes, uh, those uh, tests were conducted over a period of about uh, three or four years. The program itself became public knowledge in the mid 1970s with a hearing known as a Church Committee at the United States Senate. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the the program itself had uh, been ended uh, 10, 15 years earlier than that. Uh, but the residue of that, if I can use that term, uh, continues today. And so anyone who would like to Google MKUltra will get a couple million hits on the uh, Internet. We have pretty much run out of time, so we can't get to the blind sheikh who had a mosque on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, not far from our studios here at WBAI. Um, uh, compliments to Keith, uh, because you also worked on the TV series, The Americans, obviously sharing your expertise. Uh, and uh, we thank the both of you. Uh, sorry we can't get to more, but that's why people should read your book, uh, for talking about your book, Spy Sites of New York City, A Guide to the, the Region's Secret History, published by Georgetown University Press. Thank you so much, H. Keith Melton and Robert Wallace. Uh, thank it's you. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. We will be in New York on uh, March 4 and 5 at the uh, Rizzoli Bookstore on the 4th and at the KGB Museum on the 5th. Okay. So if anyone wants to come by and get their book signed, we will be happy to do that. Okay. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Deborah Freeman, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook, also Twitter, and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can leave your comments on all of those sites. We hope you'll join us uh, on, well, we're preempted tomorrow, but we hope you'll join us on Friday when Richard Cain will discuss his new photo collection, River of Blood, American Slavery from the People Who Lived It. We'll see you then. And in case uh, you don't know or haven't heard, we're in the first week of WBI's Winter Pledge Drive, and we hope that you'll support this show and all of the shows that you hear on WBAI. You can do that by going to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And anyone who makes a contribution now uh, for $50 or more can receive a copy of the book that we've been talking about, Spy Sites of New York City, A Guide to the Region's Secret History. Uh, call in, become a member, and then later go to that uh, event at Rizzoli and get it signed. Uh, we hope that you will call us. WBAI needs as much of a show of support as we can get. Again, 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org. And thank you.